I, uh, I heard of a zoo that um, had this all-star gorilla. And that was the attraction. The big attraction of the zoo was this gorilla. And he was like this beautiful, he like acted for people. And, you know, he'd eat the bananas and beat his chest. And like people came to see the gorilla. And so when this gorilla died, the zoo didn't know what to do. So they kind of kept it a secret. And the the top brass all got together and they met and they said, what are we going to do? Because if we don't have this gorilla, our attendance is going to go down. You know, people are going to be upset. And so what should we do? And they decided on a solution that would give them some time. And so they called in one of the zookeepers and they said, hey, buddy, would you dress up in this gorilla costume and... Um, act like a gorilla, and so we'll give us some time before we can find another gorilla to replace um, Bozo or whatever his name was. And so this zookeeper said, okay, I'll do it. And he started dressing up and being the gorilla, and he found that he actually kind of enjoyed it a little bit. And, you know, he's pretty good at <coughs> beating his chest and hopping around the, the enclosure and everything, and he'd swing on the tree, and he was, he was getting good at it. And then one day, he was really, really going for it, and he was swinging, and he started swinging around on the branch, woo, woo, and he was, like, going for it, and whoosh, let go at the wrong moment, and he flew over the wall of the enclosure into the next enclosure which was the lion paddock. And as he landed and he looked across the, the, the enclosure, he saw the lion sunning himself and the lion lifted his head and looked over at him and he kind of backed up against the wall and he started, please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. And he started trying to climb out, but he can't, you can't climb out. And, and suddenly the lion got up and started padding over and like stalking him kind of and got closer and closer, and the guy's like crawling, please don't hurry, please don't hurry. And the lion got closer and closer and looked like he was about to pounce, and then it got a little bit closer, and as it got right up in his face, the lion said, shut up, man, you get us both fired. (laughs) This same thing happens to us a lot, I think. I think that sometimes something will happen and it, it, we, we get afraid it's going to tarnish our image. Like, you know, the dip in zoo attendance. So there's going to be a public backlash. And so we don a costume. We put it on and we begin playing a role. And we, sometimes we get so good at it, we don't even know how we're going to stop. And then what happens is suddenly we realize other people are doing it too. We realize, I'm not alone in this. There's a whole bunch of people who are just playing the part. Are there any animals in the zoo? We don't know. Maybe they're all people in costume. We're taking January to refocus. And so we're doing a sermon series, and it's going to be a a rehashing of our community jubilee values. What do we care about? What do we go on and on and on about? What do we make decisions? What lens do we make those decisions through? You know, our post-gathering, our end-of-gathering benediction, we always say, you know, we're moving from gathering to scattering. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be the church scattered? What does that look like? What does it look like for my faith and my walk with God and my spiritual life and my, all these things to change my day-to-day, every, every moment life? How does that work and how does it look? So I've titled our series From Sunday to Every Day. And we're going to be talking about our values as they're lived out in the everyday. 
And so the three values we've talked about a lot are the redemptive news, or we could call it the gospel, the relational journey, and that's with the following God and walking with others, and then the outward mission. We're going to be talking about these things through this Sunday to every day, which I stole someone, I heard someone say, they were talking, they said, from Sunday to every day, and I was like, that's a great sermon title. And then our sermon series, and then I looked it up and lots of people have done it, so it's not even original. Although my sermon is original, so don't panic, okay? Worry. This morning, we're going to be looking at um, how understanding and embracing the gospel changes how we live our everyday life. Understanding and embracing the gospel changes how we live our everyday life. It changes how I see myself. The gospel, the good news, changes how I see myself. You know, we went to a Christmas party over the holidays, and I ended up in a conversation with a friend. He's a a soccer dad from a team I coached a number of years ago. And he asked me to tell him about our church, and so I was talking about that. And then he shared, and he shared that uh, he grew up in a religious household, but he didn't believe in God. And so he really held to, like, Christian morality is a good thing. It, it helped set him on a good course. But the, the rest of it, you know, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, all that kind of theological stuff, you know, he could take it or leave it. He'll mostly leave it. And so he asked me if I would email him and invite him on a week where we're talking more about morality and not really about the Jesus stuff. And in the moment, I was like, okay, I'll try to do that. I guess I'll find a week, something. I'll find something. And I left and I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I hope there is never a week where I'm talking about morality and I'm not talking about Jesus. And if that happens, if I plan to do that and I send that email, you should probably fire me. You know, maybe that happens by accident sometimes. I hope not. I hope not. But that should not be happening here. The truth is that this is the gospel that we hold. Jesus is the gospel that we hold. It's not a message about morality. I think people have this idea that we're mostly good people who sometimes we do bad stuff. And if we can just learn to do the right thing, then we'll be on the right track. And if I can just, you know, do enough right or good things, then I'll kind of out, outdo the bad things, you know, that other stuff that I do. And we kind of have this sense. Now, there's a problem with this. And I'll explain it through this illustration. I park in the underground at the rec center, the leisure center. Anyone else? Yeah, it's dry, right? And there you get one hour of free parking, and after that you have to pay. So I always try to keep, because I'm cheap, I try to keep my swimming exercise to one hour, and then I don't have to pay. And so I park in there, I get my ticket, and they started putting this little bin between the two parking meters. Now, you put in your code, even though you're not paying, you just put it in and it's free. So then I take the ticket and I would just throw it away or put it in my pocket or whatever, and then they put this little bin there and you can put your ticket in the bin if you don't want to carry it around. I was like, that's cool. So I started doing that every time. And then I, one day I came down and I went to my car and there was a ticket on my car and I was livid. I was angry. I thought, this is incredible. They, they ticketed me. And I was like, oh, my ticket, I, it's in the bin. I'll go get it. And so I ran, cause I'm going to argue this better believe it. And I ran to the bin and 
the bin's empty. Because, of course, what's the first thing the meter person does? They empty the bin and then ticket everybody. Don't put your ticket in the bin, people. I'm going to share this life lesson with you, okay? Now, so in the end, I have to pay that. I, I've had to pay that ticket because I had no real ground to stand on, even though I thought about arguing it anyway. The truth is, I don't feel badly. I don't feel badly. I don't feel regret other than that I put my ticket into the bin. I feel some regret over that. Because really, aren't these technicalities, aren't these like, you know, like, I, I guess I entered the wrong number, and so somehow, but I was, I was there, it was one hour, I was like, it's a technicality, really, isn't it? And I think a lot of times we have this same view about sin, is, is we, we understand that we've offended God in some way, and that, you know, we probably owe him some sort of fine or penalty, but these are minor offenses, right? Like, I haven't killed anybody. I just parked in the wrong stall. Like, come on, God. Isn't this the issue? Now, the Bible talks about, <laughs> it talks about this very differently than like a minor ticket. In Romans chapter 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That doesn't sound minor. The glory of God. Or in Romans 6.23, says, For the wages of sin is death. That sounds like a major penalty, not a minor penalty. And the truth is that the story of the gospel, we can understand it in four, kind of under four headings. And usually that kind of helps me remember it. But the story of the gospel is, the story of the good news is, number one, creation. Number two, the fall. Number three, redemption. And number four, restoration. So creation is this idea that we were made in God's image that he made us for relationship with him, that his, we were his very good creation. We were made for a purpose, and we had joy in our work, and we lived without shame in our everyday life. We were naked. We lived without shame, and we walked and talked, and we lived with God in the garden. This is the picture. Genesis chapter one twenty seven says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his image, beautiful, like him. But there is the fall. We rebelled against God, and this rebellion's been in our hearts ever since. So it's not really like a park it, parking ticket infraction. It would be more like cancer in your body, like a terminal diagnosis, like there's something inside of you that's mutated, it's in there, that you can't just get rid of. It's not an external, it's in there. And it's killing you. So please don't hear me say if you have cancer, you're a sinner, and that's like why you can't. So it's, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's, this sin has similar qualities as cancer does. That's a way we can understand it. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You were dead. It was hanging over you. But there's redemption. Jesus came and he died and he rose again. Because Jesus was without sin, he alone could take the penalty we deserve. He alone could die and rise again and bring wholeness. The word salvation is about being whole, healed, like healed of that 
sin cancer that's rooted down in there, we would be healed and walk free. Romans 3.24 says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And the last one is restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And the restoration is that, is that God will make things new. That what we, we see, the world as we see it, is not the way it will always be. This is not the end. That Jesus is coming again. And this is our hope. And we're invited to join him in the work of restoration. The work of making things new. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So blah, 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 blah. What does all this mean? What does it mean to me as I walk out my day-to-day life? Like, I hope you can hear those things and remember them. But like, what does that mean? What it means is that I'm not a Sunday Christian. I don't come in here and get confession and check off my week. Oh, all the bad things I did. Okay, well, at least I feel better because I came to church and I got, you know, had communion, so I feel better now. It doesn't work like that. I don't, we don't live like that because that kind of life is like you, you would live in being shameless all week, just doing whatever you want, whatever feels good, and then you come in and you would be ashamed. You live between shamelessness and being ashamed. And this horrible feeling of shame is you come in and you feel, I'm not as spiritual as everyone. Oh, I'm struggled. Oh, I had a bad week. Oh, I always have a bad week. Oh, and this would be our life. Nor does it mean we're smirky Christians. This is a common title, smirky. Have you ever heard that? Smirky Christian? Now you can start using it. Hey, you're being a smirky Christian. Just kidding. Don't say that to anyone. Smirky Christian are the people who walk in pride and judgment. We're accumulating our points. Oh, yeah, look how great I was. Yeah, I got another point. Ching. Yes, I got another point. Ching. Look how spiritual I am. And in this picture, I would live between being proud and compartmentalized. Because smirky Christians, in order to live like that, you just compartmentalize your life. Oh, I'm doing so well. Look at me. Check, check. Bing, bing. I'm so spiritual over here. Yeah, don't look at that part. Yeah, or that part. Yeah, we keep those doors closed. Because, yeah, that doesn't matter. Only this matters. And we divide up our life. Yeah, my business. Yeah, that doesn't matter. That's different than how, what a great Christian I am. And the truth is that the gospel changing me means that I am a sinner turned saint. But for the grace of God go I, or, you know, uh, I once was blind and now I see. I was rescued by grace. I was adopted as a son or daughter in God's family. I've been set free so that I can participate in setting others free, in joining with the work of Jesus. The gospel changes how I see myself. It also changes how I see others, how I see and interact with other people. We get this funny idea that, you know, I told you four points, and so we write those four points down, and we're like, this is me. I'm like, I'm going to memorize those four points, and then when I get in a conversation, I'm going to try to inject those four points somewhere into the conversation, like, hey, did you know about creation, fall, redemption, restoration? And I'm going to try to fit it in, and I'm hoping that at the end of that conversation with someone— they're going to suddenly be like, hey, can I pray the sinner's prayer with you? And I'll be like, yeah, repeat after me. And we're going to pray the sinner's prayer. We'll kneel down, yes. And then if you come to church and you're good, you can be a Christian too. And I have this idea that that's the gospel. 
And that's what I'm supposed to do, is somehow inject this message into things. Now, Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Wow, okay. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul wants to preach the gospel, but he's not going to use fancy theological explanations. And he might use a four-pointer sometimes, I don't know. But what he wants most of all is to demonstrate the gospel by the power of the Spirit. Now, he might mean like healing someone or raising someone from the dead, or he might mean living his life in a way that demonstrates the gospel by the power of the Spirit. Wow, what a great testimony. What a great um, demonstration is a life transformed by the goodness of God, by the power of the Spirit. In my discipleship training school many, many years ago, we had a speaker who came in, and his name was Dean Sherman, and he was supposed to talk about relationship, and I still remember the very first thing he got up and was like, every problem is a relationship problem. And I was like, wow, you're going to make like huge statements like this? Like every problem? And like, yeah, just t- you tell me the problem, and I'll tell you how it's a relationship problem. I'm like, okay, what about starvation? Is that a relationship problem? Like, I can tell you how starvation is. How did he know that? And all the things I'm saying. So then you think about like, is this true? Like every problem is a relationship problem? And he went on to, that was his message. That as we live, this is what we're in relationship with people. Now, I feel like the same thing's true about the gospel. Like we could say every problem is a gospel problem. Every problem is a gospel problem somewhere, somehow. If the good news doesn't change the way I live, my day-to-day life, my relationships, my choices, my work time, my leisure time, then I haven't understood the gospel. If it doesn't begin to change all those things, I haven't understood it. The gospel changes my view of marriage. Changes my view of marriage. I'm supposed to check with Lauren whenever I put up a picture of her. But I didn't, and she's upstairs, so don't tell her, okay? Unless you say, oh, it's a good picture. Okay, good. The gospel changed my view of marriage. When I first got married, I kind of, like, before I got married, I thought of marriage as, like, I know it's going to be hard, but, like, come on. You're going to be married. I'm going to be married to Lauren. I love her so much. Like, ooh, this is going to be so great. We get to be together all the time. We get to, you know, other things. And, like, it's so awesome. Like, wow, how could there be anything? Like, I'm gonna, it's going to be bliss all the time. And you kinda, I kind of had this idea that that's what it was going to be like that struggling marriages were for people who just didn't try hard enough. (laughs) Yeah, okay, buddy. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like, great passage to quote. We'll quote the verse before it a lot. This one, yeah, oh yeah, great. What does it mean for uh, the way Christ gave himself up for the church? Understanding the gospel of Jesus makes me a better husband. You know why? Because I realize that I'm being refined. I'm being transformed. My flesh heart surfaces for Jesus to transform me. 
This marriage thing is to teach me how to give myself up like he did so that I can experience and embrace the joy and the beauty of sacrificial love. And it is amazing. The gospel changes how I parent. I think a lot of parents believe that if our kids are moral and compliant, then we'd be doing well. And as they grow up, we want them to be successful and, you know, functional. And if we had those things, we'd be like, okay, we did it. We did a good job. They're moral, they're compliant, they're successful and functional or something. And this is what we think and we work toward. However, the gospel, the good news, demands a higher call. It demands a more stringent expose of me and of them. So in discipline, my goal is to, for my kids to experience the gospel every time. So, and it doesn't always happen, but that's my goal. That's what I want out of discipline and training my kids. It would be that they would know that God, God loves you and I love you and that you're a sinner. You should own it. Whatever you did, own it. You're a sinner. Like me, you will fail. And Jesus died for this thing that you just did and for all of your failure and all of mine. And usually I insert some personal examples there. Hey, like the time I did this and the time I did this. And yeah, I was really embarrassed when I did this because that was a big failure. And Jesus has forgiven me and made me new. And then that they are changed daily, not by their willpower, but by the power of the Spirit. So my job is to teach in every opportunity that they are like me, a sinner saved by grace, loved by a good father, redeemed and rescued by Jesus, who transforms us by his spirit alive in us. It changes how I parent. The good news changes how I deal with conflict. You know, with conflict, to be honest, my very first reaction to conflict is, is defensiveness. I usually right away get defensive, like this weekend when our neighbor came over on early Saturday morning, and he was very angry that someone parked in front of his driveway, someone he thought was connected to us. In front of his driveway, meaning across the street on our side of the property, across the street from his house. He was very angry that someone would park in front of his driveway across the street. Very angry, like taking pictures and calling bylaws, and he called the police. None of this I knew. And my first reaction is that I am right, and I'm going to fight for my recognition that I'm right and that you're wrong. By definition, I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm going to sacrifice for that outcome, that people, you would say, okay, you're right, Jonathan. I'm wrong, you're right. But the gospel shatters this illusion, and the way it does that is because in order to enter into the kingdom, I have to admit I was wrong. I have to admit, I wasn't right. I was far away, selfish and proud, and Jesus came to find me. Lifted me out of the mire, not because I deserved it, but because he's good and gracious. And so when I live the gospel in conflict, I'm challenged to choose relationship over being right. Like when I want to say, you're being crazy right now, neighbor. 
Instead, both Lauren and I, by the miraculous grace of God, were able to say, we'd like to work with you. I said, I want to be a good neighbor. I want to work with you. So I will try. We'll, we'll try to work this out. I didn't know this before, so let me try to work it out. And he left very mollified, I guess. The truth is that I forgive because I was forgiven. And I show grace because grace was shown to me. And the more I experience this, the more I'm able to share it and live it with others. Mark 16, 15 says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. How are we going to do that? What does that look like? It looks like changing how I relate in my job with my employees or my coworkers, with my interactions with my teachers or my parents or my siblings or my friends or my enemies or my neighbors or my neighbor enemies, my neighbor friends. Changes how I interact with people. When I see how the gospel changes me, I must treat others differently. It also changes how I see God. I don't like running into people in the grocery store. And the reason is because I have so many different worlds that I'm a part of or that I've been a part of that when I go to the grocery store and I meet someone that, you know, maybe I don't know as well, and they're like, oh, hi, Jonathan. And I'm like, hi, where do I know you from? And like, I have to start going through all these different places. Is it from Jubilee? No. Okay, is it from MRCC? No. Is it from old MRCC where you used to go there? Is it from... Um, is it from soccer? Is it from the community? Is it from Starbucks? Is it from Trinity? Is it, I, I had to go through all the things. Like I was, I was in the coffee shop and I ran into this lady and she, we both looked at each other and we're both like, hi. Like I feel like I know you pretty well, but I don't know why I don't know you. Here. And then I realized it was my hairdresser. And then she was like, oh, like we both twigged at the same moment of like, oh, okay. And then was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is weird. We're meeting here. Like, where are the scissors? I don't know. Like, I can't recognize you without scissors in your hand. And I think sometimes we feel this way about God outside of Sunday. Like, suddenly he's out of context. And you're like, what? What are you doing here? Like at this Christmas party that I was talking about, someone... Someone dragged me over to the alcohol buffet. This was like a neighborhood party. Someone dragged me over to the alcohol buffet and they said, try this chili shot. And I was like, uh, what's the chili shot? And they were like, no, it's, it's really, it's really gross. You got to try it. And I was like, um, and then I'm like thinking like quickly, I'm like, can I do this? Is this okay? Like, should I do this? I don't know. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. And so I smell it. Oh, it smelled disgusting. And I was like, i like drank the tiniest sip and it was like, burned my mouth and my nose and I was like oh ugh, ugh, I can't I can't drink this is disgusting and then he started laughing he was like I'm just amazed you'd try that like I'm impressed here drink this rum and coke to wash it down and he pull and literally I'm watching him. he pours like a huge glass of rum with a tiny bit of coke and then I'm like he's trying to get me drunk he knows I'm a pastor and he's trying to get me drunk at this party and so he gives me the thing and then he says as if he reads my thoughts he says I'm not trying to get you drunk I'm just too drunk to pour and then I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just hold this glass, I guess. And just, I'll just chat while I hold the glass. And so I started, I was standing there and I literally had that thought. And then he turns to me and he says, so tell me what makes your church different from every other church in town. And I was like, what? 
you just poured this? What? Like, God, you're not at this party, are you? Like, do you see this guy? You're, are you here in this moment at this Christmas party in the neighborhood with this guy who's had a little too much to drink? Are you here right now? And I realize that I'm confronted all the time about my views of God. Things I, you know, I wouldn't admit, but like I'm confronted in that moment about what I believe about God. My sanitized, slow-moving, hard-of-hearing, daughtered old man God. Or my holy, angry, wrathful, finger-wagging, disapproving God. Or my Sunday checklist, gold-star-dealing, tradition-trapped God. And do you know where he confronts me about these gods I have? In the everyday places where I live and work and play and learn. God shows up. When we truly see and experience the good news gospel of the kingdom, we find that we're confronted by the lies we believe about who God is in our everyday moments. This is Jesus. He offends the Pharisees by stuff he says, yes, stuff he says offends them, but a lot of stuff he does or where he goes or who he talks to or who he hangs out with. He's, he's there every day. He's just walking around on a Sunday oh, or Sabbath day. He heals someone and everyone's up in arms. He's there. He encounters the lepers. And in an unplanned moment, he touches them in compassion and love. Or he decides to go make friends with the tax collectors and hang out with sinners, eating and drinking with them. And people were offended. Places we don't think God should be. People we don't think God should love. Moments when we're checked out, or we're tuned out, or we're compromising, and God shows up in the middle of it, challenging us to allow the good news to change how we see him. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow, that's a big statement. What we think about God, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because belief informs action. Like when I first got married and I wanted to love Lauren. And so I loved Lauren in the way that I receive love and the way I give love, which is to do lots of stuff in the love languages model. It would be acts of service. I want to do stuff. So I do the dishes. Look how much I love you, Lauren. And I'd go build something, some furniture thing, or I'd paint the walls in the room and she'd come in. I'd be like, see how much I love you? Look at this. And then I'd go do it on a vacuum and she'd come home from work. I'd have made dinner and put it all out on the table. Look how much I love you. Look at this. And then I learned that Lauren's love language isn't acts of service. Lauren's love language is quality time. Yeah, I'm going to go do this thing for you, okay? Don't you feel loved? No, she doesn't. She's like, thanks for doing the dishes. Thanks for cleaning. Thanks for that. Thanks for this. Will you come and spend some time with me so that I feel loved? When I learned that about Lauren, it changed a lot of things. It meant that going for a date where we just sit or going and doing something together where there's something she wants to do, that means more to her than all, all sorts of stuff I could do. 
it changes my behavior when I learn who, more of who she is. What we believe about God affects our whole life. A.W. Tozer writes this. This is the rest of what he says. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart believes or conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. It tells us what we're going to do, how we're going to please him. Who is God? What does he want from us? These are important questions that inform our actions. So what does the gospel tell us about God? That God is love. God loves you and he made you. Um, Brendan Manning says, this is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. It's so weird why he would do this. Love us just the way we are. But we are his treasured possession his beloved children, creation meant to bring him glory, created to bring him glory. And God is holy. He's just and right. His, the foundation of his throne is justice. He cares about justice. He fights for the oppressed. And we sinned against him. And this rebellion damaged our relationship with God. And God is generous. He gave himself for you and for me. He redeemed us. He came and Jesus showed us what God was like and then he went to the cross and died to give his own life to reconcile us. And he redeems what's lost and broken and gives his very spirit. And God wants a daily intimate relationship with us. He wants to walk with us in our lives moment to moment. And God is restorative. He's making new. And he wants you to do that with him, to walk that out with him. He's restoring us and desiring that we would go to every place and every person and bring the light and hope of the kingdom where we go. The good news changes everything. And so understanding and embracing the gospel changes how we live our everyday lives. He didn't come to die and rise again so I would be nicer or moral. He isn't after behavior change. He wants radical heart redemption, transformation. And he isn't worthy of worship just here when we gather or in some church building somewhere. He's worthy of our worship in our whole lives, in our every moment, in everything we do. And this is the good news story, that God is the star. He's the hope, not me. This isn't my work. I didn't start this. I'm not going to finish it. It's him. It's his work. That's why it's good news. So I'm his child reconciled, forgiven, made whole, and being made whole. I'm his joyful partner in the renewal of all things. And his promise is to present me in the kingdom as a pure and spotless and radiant bride. That's his promise for you and for me. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that the more we see you as you are truly, the more we love you, the more we are able to live our lives in ways that are um, bring you joy and bring you glory, in ways that bring us life. I thank you that um, as we see ourselves in light of all of this truth, Lord, it changes how we how we live, changes what we what we how we talk about ourselves or how we think about ourselves, what we feel like we're able to do or what we're supposed to do for you. I thank you that it changes our interactions with all the people around us. It changes our families, it changes our marriages, it changes our friendships, it changes our community service, it changes our our the way we see the world around us. Because you came and you loved us and you found us and you rescued us and you set your spirit inside of us to bring change to us. And your promise is that you're going to come again and that the end will be more beautiful. And so we cling to you in hope. We thank you that you are good and you are love and that you demonstrated this by coming. We thank you that for every person who asks, every person who says, yes, will you come in and change me? You say, I will come in. You say you're knocking at the door to come in. So Jesus, we want to open the door to you and say, yes, come in and bring change. Help us to see you as you are. We love you, God. Amen.